Julian Charles here of themindsrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 238, which is the first of a short series of podcasts that are going to be a bit different from the usual interview. Because as of now, and for the next few weeks, things are going to be a bit difficult for me in terms of podcasting, or more specifically in terms of conducting interviews because I'm going to be rather busy with various things, uh, family events, preaching appointments, roofers, because we've we've got a leaking chimney, double glazing installers, because the wind is literally blowing in around the frames of our current 35-year-old double glazing, so we've, we're getting that changed. Anyway, all sorts of things are going on for the next three to four weeks, which will make particularly the business of researching for arranging, conducting and editing interviews rather difficult for a short while. So what I intend to do, and this is something that long-term listeners will be familiar with because I've done it many times before, what I intend to do is to, as I call it, share things of interest and importance. Now, usually that has been something like a particularly fascinating lecture, debate, or classic interview that I've gained permission to share, such as, for example... Stanley Monteith's classic interview with Anthony Sutton, or the classic debate between Richard Gage and Chris Moore on 9-11, things like that. Uh, but this time, I might do things slightly differently. It occurs to me that at TMR, I actually have a substantial back catalogue of really interesting materials in their own right. And, you know, no matter how many times I say to people, do go back through the archive at TMR to hear such and such, I know that the vast majority of people just will not do that. Now, I'm not blaming anyone. People are busy. I know that. And it takes time and an effort to go searching through archives to find things. So I do quite understand that. But it does mean that many people, especially those who are new to TMR, might never get to hear quite a lot of the TMR output, which is a shame because, as the phrase goes, though I say it myself who shouldn't, there is a lot of very valuable material there, much of it that continues to be relevant. So what I'm intending to do is to reshare some of that material just for the next few weeks. I'm not fully decided quite how I'm going to do that yet. I might do different things. I might simply repost something if I'm really pushed for time. I might take excerpts from various interviews, episodes, and craft a narrative around those to create something new. I might share something completely fresh. I might actually get round to an interview. Who knows? I, I do not know. I'll do whatever time permits, hopefully each week, but as time permits. So that actually starts now because today I'm going to share something new from the very important blog posts of Craig Murray on the Julian Assange extradition hearings that are going on at Belmarsh Magistrates Court. That is Belmarsh as of Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh Category A Men's Prison in London. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with him, Craig Murray is a former British ambassador. He's an author, broadcaster, and human rights activist. And he has a very significant blog over at craigmurray.org.uk, which I have found 
enormously helpful over the years, and I do continue to find helpful, for giving really very rational and informed commentary on all kinds of matters, particularly geopolitical matters, things that otherwise find distorted and propagandistic reporting in the mainstream media. Now, I don't agree with everything he writes on every single page, but Murray so often has his finger on the pulse and presents a really helpful voice of reason amidst the madness. So too with this, he champions the cause of Julian Assange, and I think he's right to do so. And he's been down there in London covering the hearings because, as he says, the mainstream media is basically just not doing its job. And he's in a position to get in there and listen to what's going on and report back for us. Let me just uh, share with you his own words that he wrote about that on the 21st of February. Quote, Julian Assange will stand next week in the armoured dock, accused of the crime of publishing. It is worth recalling that WikiLeaks has a 100% record of accuracy. Nothing it has published has ever been shown to be inauthentic. Julian stands accused of the crime of telling the truth. More than that, of telling freely to the ordinary people of the world about the crimes which the powerful seek to conceal. It is a sad and damning fact that nobody in the United States has ever been jailed for the war crimes WikiLeaks has revealed, for the massacre of journalists and of children, for the torture or for the corruption. Instead, the publisher, who helped whistleblowers to get the truth out to the people, has suffered enormously and is threatened with incarceration for the rest of his life. We might also consider that none of Julian's publishing ever took place inside the United States. The USA is trying to extradite him for publishing American secrets outside the USA in a startling claim of worldwide jurisdiction. It is a prosecution that would, if successful, have a massive chilling effect on investigative journalists all over the globe. The fact that the mainstream media editors who gleefully republished WikiLeaks revelations are not also in the dock reflects the fact that the security services are now very confident they have those outlets under control. For these and many other reasons, Julian's hearing next week is extremely important, and I am going down to London today for 10 days to cover it and to take part in associated events. Unquote. So as this is a very significant event, both inadequately reported by the mainstream media and of course increasingly overshadowed by the ongoing coronavirus story, and since Craig Murray himself is encouraging people to share these important blog posts as widely as possible, I thought I would share them myself uh, in the way that I can by using this podcast. You know, it's a drop in the ocean, of course, but I do feel I have to do something. So as is the nature of the case, I am speaking the text, but of course the words themselves are his. Now, I can't vouch for what he says because, you know, I'm not there myself. These are his words, but I do have a high degree of trust in this man. He is I think one of the most significant voices in this thing that we call the alternative media. As I say, I don't agree with everything he says on every subject, but I do think he is a man of high integrity and by and large, I trust his judgment. So I am happy to share what he says. Now, as you listen to this, if you do indeed listen to this, please bear in mind that I may well have made some mistakes. I have done my best to speak this, but I have to say that at times I've found it surprisingly difficult to get the right emphasis in some of the sentences, because some of these sentences are pretty convoluted, as you will come to hear. But I have done my best. But if you are in any doubt about any of it, please do go and check the original blog posts for clarification. And there will be links, of course, in the show notes to help you do that. Let me just say, I don't know if any of this works as a podcast. 
Maybe it doesn't. As I say, you know, some of it is pretty convoluted and does not transfer well from text to speech. But I felt I had to do something. This is an important event. If Julian Assange is extradited, that will be a very dark day for journalism and for free speech in general. I don't know if Craig Murray is going to cover any more of this or write up any more, but this is what he wrote for the first four days of the hearings, as of my speaking now. So without further ado, the words of Craig Murray. Your Man in the Public Gallery, Assange Hearing Day One, published on the 25th of February 2020. Woolwich Crown Court is designed to impose the power of the state. Normal courts in this country are public buildings, deliberately placed by our ancestors right in the centre of towns, almost always just up a few steps from a main street. The major purpose of their positioning and of their architecture was to facilitate public access in the belief that it is vital that justice can be seen by the public. Woolwich Crown Court, which hosts Belmarsh Magistrates Court, is built on totally the opposite principle – It is designed with no other purpose than to exclude the public. Attached to a prison on a windswept marsh, far from any normal social centre, an island accessible only through navigating a maze of dual carriageways, the entire location and architecture of the building is predicated on preventing public access. It is surrounded by a continuation of the same extremely heavy-duty steel paling barrier that surrounds the prison. It is the most extraordinary thing, a courthouse, which is a part of the prison system itself, a place where you are already considered guilty and in jail on arrival. Woolwich Crown Court is nothing but the physical negation of the presumption of innocence, the very incarnation of injustice in unyielding steel, concrete and armoured glass. It has precisely the same relationship to the administration of justice as Guantanamo Bay or the Lubyanka. It is, in truth, just the sentencing wing of Belmarsh Prison. When inquiring about facilities for the public to attend the hearing, an Assange activist was told by a member of court staff that we should realise that Woolwich is a counter-terrorism court. That is true de facto, but in truth, a counter-terrorism court is an institution unknown to the UK Constitution. Indeed, if a single day at Woolwich Crown Court does not convince you the existence of liberal democracy is now a lie, then your mind must be very closed indeed. Extradition hearings are not held at Belmarsh Magistrates Court inside Woolwich Crown Court. They are always held at Westminster Magistrates Court, as the application is deemed to be delivered to the government at Westminster. Now, get your head around this. This hearing is at Westminster Magistrates Court. It is being held by the Westminster Magistrates and Westminster Court staff, but located at Belmarsh Magistrates Court inside Woolwich Crown Court, all of which weird convolution is precisely so they can use the counter-terrorism court to limit public access and to impose the fear of the power of the state. One consequence is that in the courtroom itself, Julian Assange is confined at the back of the court behind a bulletproof glass screen. He made the point several times during the proceedings that this makes it very difficult for him to see and hear the proceedings. The magistrate, Vanessa Barretzer, chose to interpret this with studied dishonesty as a problem caused by the very faint noise of demonstrators outside, 
as opposed to a problem caused by Assange being locked away from the court in a massive bulletproof glass box. Now, there is no reason at all for Assange to be in that box, designed to restrain extremely physically violent terrorists. He could sit, as a defendant at a hearing normally would, in the body of the court with his lawyers. But the cowardly and vicious Baritzer has refused repeated and persistent requests from the defence for Assange to be allowed to sit with his lawyers. Baritzer, of course, is but a puppet, being supervised by Chief Magistrate Lady Arbuthnot, a woman so enmeshed in the defence and security service establishment, I can conceive of no way in which her involvement in this case could be more corrupt. It does not matter to Baritzer or Arbuthnot if there is any genuine need for Assange to be incarcerated in a bulletproof box, or whether it stops him from following proceedings in court, Barrett's intention is to humiliate Assange, and to instill in the rest of us horror at the vast crushing power of the state. The inexorable strength of the sentencing wing of the nightmarish Belmarsh prison must be maintained. If you are here, you are guilty. It's the Lubyanka. You may only be a remand prisoner, This may only be a hearing, not a trial. You may have no history of violence and not be accused of any violence. You may have three of the country's most eminent psychiatrists submitting reports of your history of severe clinical depression and warning of suicide. But I, Vanessa Barretzer, am still going to lock you up in a box designed for the most violent of terrorists to show what we can do to dissidents. And if you can't then follow court proceedings, all the better. You will perhaps better accept what I say about the court when I tell you that, for a hearing being followed all round the world, they have brought it to a courtroom which had a total number of 16 seats available to members of the public. 16. To make sure I got one of those 16, and could be your man in the gallery, I was outside that great locked iron fence queuing in the cold, wet and wind from 6am. At 8am, the gate was unlocked, and I was able to walk inside the fence to another queue, before the doors of the courtroom, where, despite the fact notices clearly state the court opens to the public at 8am, I had to queue outside the building again for another hour and 40 minutes. Then I was processed through armoured airlock doors, through airport-type security, and had to queue behind two further locked doors before finally getting to my seat just as the court started at 10am, by which stage the intention was we should have been thoroughly cowed and intimidated, not to mention drenched and potentially hypothermic. There was a separate media entrance and a media room with live transmission from the courtroom, and there were so many scores of media I thought I could relax and not worry as the basic facts would be widely reported. In fact, I could not have been more wrong. I followed the arguments very clearly every minute of the day, and not a single one of the most important facts and arguments today has been reported anywhere in the mainstream media. That is a bold claim, but I fear it is perfectly true. So I have much work to do to let the world know what actually happened. The mere act of being an honest witness is suddenly extremely important when the entire media has abandoned that role. James Lewis QC made the opening statement for the prosecution. It consisted of two parts, both equally extraordinary. The first and longest part was truly remarkable for containing no legal argument and for being addressed not to the magistrate but to the media. It is not just that it was obvious that is where his remarks were aimed. He actually stated on two occasions during his opening statement that he was addressing the media. 
once repeating a sentence and specifically saying that he was repeating it again because it was important that the media got it. I am frankly astonished that Barretzer allowed this. It is completely out of order for a counsel to address remarks not to the court but to the media. And there simply could not be any clearer evidence that this is a political show trial and that Barretzer is complicit in that. I have not the slightest doubt that the defence would have been pulled up extremely quickly had they started addressing remarks to the media. Barretzer makes zero pretense of being anything other than enthralled to the Crown, and by extension to the US government. The points which Lewis wished the media to know were these. It is not true that mainstream outlets like The Guardian and New York Times are also threatened by charges against Assange because Assange was not charged with publishing the cables but only with publishing the names of informants and with cultivating Manning and assisting him to attempt computer hacking. Only Assange had done these things, not mainstream outlets. Lewis then proceeded to read out a series of articles from the mainstream media attacking Assange as evidence that the media and Assange were not in the same boat. The entire opening hour consisted of the prosecution addressing the media, attempting to drive a clear wedge between the media and WikiLeaks, and thus aimed at reducing media support for Assange. It was a political address, not remotely a legal submission. At the same time, the prosecution had prepared reams of copies of this section of Lewis's address, which were handed out to the media and given them electronically so they could cut and paste. Following an adjournment, Magistrate Barretzer questioned the prosecution on the veracity of some of these claims. In particular, the claim that newspapers were not in the same position because Assange was charged not with publication but with aiding and abetting Chelsea Manning in getting the material did not seem consistent with Lewis's reading of the 1989 Official Secrets Act, which said that merely obtaining and publishing any government secret was an offence. Surely, Barretzer suggested... That meant that newspapers just publishing the Manning leaks would be guilty of an offence? This appeared to catch Lewis entirely off guard. The last thing he had expected was any perspicacity from Barretzer, whose job was just to do what he said. Lewis hummed and hawed, put his glasses on and off several times, adjusted his microphone repeatedly and picked up a succession of pieces of paper from his brief, each of which appeared to surprise him by its contents, as he waved them haplessly in the air and said he really should have cited the Shaler case but couldn't find it. It was like watching Columbo with none of the charm and without the killer question at the end of the process. Suddenly Lewis appeared to come to a decision. Yes, he said much more firmly. The 1989 Official Secrets Act had been introduced by the Thatcher government after the Ponting case specifically to remove the public interest defence and to make unauthorised possession of an official secret a crime of strict liability, meaning no matter how you got it, publishing and even possessing made you guilty. Therefore, under the principle of dual criminality, Assange was liable for extradition whether or not he had aided and abetted Manning. Lewis then went on to add that any journalist and any publication that printed the official secret would therefore also be committing an offence no matter how they obtained it, and no matter if it did or did not name informants. Lewis had thus just flat out contradicted his entire opening statement to the media, stating that they need not worry as the Assange charges could never be applied to them. And he did so straight after the adjournment, immediately after his team had handed out copies of the argument he had now just completely contradicted, 
I cannot think it has often happened in court that a senior lawyer has proven himself so absolutely and so immediately to be an unmitigated and ill-motivated liar. This was undoubtedly the most breathtaking moment in today's court hearing. Yet, remarkably, I cannot find any mention anywhere in the mainstream media that this happened at all. What I can find everywhere is the mainstream media reporting via cut and paste Lewis's first part of his statement on why the prosecution of Assange is not a threat to press freedom. But nobody seems to have reported that he totally abandoned his own argument five minutes later. Were the journalists too stupid to understand the exchanges? The explanation is very simple. The clarification coming from a question Baratzer asked Lewis, there is no printed or electronic record of Lewis's reply. His original statement was provided in cut and paste format to the media. His contradiction of it would require a journalist to listen to what was said in court, understand it and write it down. There is no significant percentage of mainstream media journalists who command that elementary ability nowadays. Journalism consists of cut and paste of approved sources only. Lewis could have stabbed Assange to death in the courtroom and it would not be reported unless contained in a government press release. I was left uncertain of Baratza's purpose in this. Plainly, she discomforted Lewis very badly on this point and appeared rather to enjoy doing so. On the other hand, the point she made is not necessarily helpful to the defence. What she was saying was essentially that Julian could be extradited under dual criminality from the UK point of view just for publishing, whether or not he conspired with Chelsea Manning, and that all the journalists who publish could be charged too. But surely this is a point so extreme that it would be bound to be invalid under the Human Rights Act? Was she pushing Lewis to articulate a position so extreme as to be untenable, giving him enough rope to hang himself? Or was she slavering at the prospect of not just extraditing Assange, but of mass prosecutions of journalists? The reaction of one group was very interesting. The four US government lawyers seated immediately behind Lewis had the grace to look very uncomfortable indeed as Lewis boldly declared that any journalist in any newspaper or broadcast media publishing or even possessing any government secret was committing a serious offence. Their entire strategy had been to pretend not to be saying that. Lewis then moved on to conclude the prosecution's arguments. The court had no decision to make, he stated. Assange must be extradited. The offence met the test of dual criminality, as it was an offence both in the USA and the UK. UK extradition law specifically barred the court from testing whether there was any evidence to back up the charges. If there had been, as the defence argued, abusive process, the court must still extradite, and then the court must pursue the abusive process as a separate matter against the abusers. This is a particularly specious argument, as it is not possible for the court to take action against the US government due to sovereign immunity, as Lewis well knows. Finally, Lewis stated that the Human Rights Act and freedom of speech were completely irrelevant in extradition proceedings. Edward Fitzgerald then arose to make the opening statement for the defence. He started by stating that the motive for the prosecution was entirely political and that political offences were specifically excluded under Article 4.1 of the UK-US Extradition Treaty. He pointed out that at the time of the Chelsea Manning trial, and again in 2013, the Obama administration had taken specific decisions not to prosecute Assange for the Manning leaks. This had been reversed by the Trump administration for reasons that were entirely political. On abuse of process, 
Fitzgerald referred to evidence presented to the Spanish criminal courts that the CIA had commissioned a Spanish security company to spy on Julian Assange in the embassy, and that this spying specifically included surveillance of Assange's privileged meetings with his lawyers to discuss extradition. For the state trying to extradite to spy on the defendant's client-lawyer consultations is in itself grounds to dismiss the case. This point is undoubtedly true. Any decent judge would throw the case out summarily for the outrageous spying on the defence lawyers. Fitzgerald went on to say that the defence would produce evidence the CIA not only spied on Assange and his lawyers, but actively considered kidnapping or poisoning him, and that this showed there was no commitment to proper rule of law in this case. Fitzgerald said that the prosecution's framing of the case contained deliberate misrepresentation of the facts that also amounted to abuse of process. It was not true that there was any evidence of harm to informants. And the US government had confirmed this in other fora, e.g. in Chelsea Manning's trial. There had been no conspiracy to hack computers, and Chelsea Manning had been acquitted on that charge at court-martial. Lastly, it was untrue that WikiLeaks had initiated publication of unredacted names of informants, as other media organisations had been responsible for this first. Again, so far as I can see, while the US allegation of harm to informants is widely reported, the defence's total refutation on the facts and claim that the fabrication of facts amounts to abuse of process is not much reported at all. Fitzgerald finally referred to US prison conditions, the impossibility of a fair trial in the US, and the fact the Trump administration has stated foreign nationals will not receive First Amendment protections, as reasons that extradition must be barred. You can read the whole defence statement, but in my view the strongest passage was on why this is a political prosecution, and thus precluded from extradition. Quote, For the purposes of section 81a, I next have to deal with the question of how this politically motivated prosecution satisfies the test of being directed against Julian Assange because of his political opinions. The essence of his political opinions which have provoked this prosecution are summarised in the reports of Professor Feldstein, tab 18, Professor Rogers, tab 40, Professor Noam Chomsky, tab 39, and Professor Koppelman. 1. He is a leading proponent of an open society and of freedom of expression. 2. He is anti-war and anti-imperialism. 3. He is a world-renowned champion of political transparency and of the public's right to access information on issues of importance, issues such as political corruption, war crimes, torture, and the mistreatment of Guantanamo detainees. 5.4. Those beliefs and those actions inevitably bring him into conflict with powerful states, including the current US administration, for political reasons which explains why he has been denounced as a terrorist and why President Trump has in the past called for the death penalty. 5.5 But I should add his revelations are far from confined to the wrongdoings of the US. He has exposed surveillance by Russia and published exposés of Mr. Assad in Syria. And it is said that WikiLeaks revelations about corruption in Tunisia and torture in Egypt were the catalyst for the Arab Spring itself. 5.6. The US say he is no journalist, but you will see a full record of his work in Bundle M. He has been a member of the Australian Journalists Union since 2009. He is a member of the NUJ and the European Federation of Journalists. He has won numerous media awards, including being honoured with the highest award for Australian journalists. His work has been recognised by The Economist, 
Amnesty International and the Council of Europe. He is the winner of the Martha Gellhorn Prize and has been repeatedly nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, including both last year and this year. You can see from the materials that he has written books, articles and documentaries. He has had articles published in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post and The New Statesman, just to name a few. Some of the very publications for which his extradition is being sought have been referred to and relied upon in courts throughout the world, including the UK Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights. In short, he has championed the cause of transparency and freedom of information throughout the world. 5.7 Professor Noam Chomsky puts it like this, quote, In courageously upholding political beliefs that most of us profess to share, he has performed an enormous service to all those in the world who treasure the values of freedom and democracy, and who therefore demand the right to know what their elected representatives are doing, unquote. See tab 39, paragraph 14. So Julian Assange's positive impact on the world is undeniable. The hostility it has provoked from the Trump administration is equally undeniable. The Legal Test for Political Opinions 5.8 I am sure you are aware of the legal authorities on this issue, namely whether a request is made because of the defendant's political opinions. A broad approach has to be adopted when applying the test. In support of this, we rely on the case of Ray Asleturk, 2002, EWHC 2326, Abuse Authorities, Tab 11 at paragraphs 25 to 26 which clearly establishes that such a wide approach should be adopted to the concept of political opinions. And that will clearly cover Julian Assange's ideological positions. Moreover, we also rely on cases such as Emilia Gomez v. SSHD 2000 INLR 549 at tab 43 of the Political Offence Authorities Bundle. These show that the concept of political opinions extends to the political opinions imputed to the individual citizen by the state which prosecutes him. For that reason, the characterization of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence agency by Mr. Pompeo, makes clear that he has been targeted for his imputed political opinions. All the experts whose reports you have show that Julian Assange has been targeted because of the political position imputed to him by the Trump administration as an enemy of America who must be brought down. Unquote. Tomorrow the defence continue. I am genuinely uncertain what will happen as I feel at the moment far too exhausted to be there at 6am to queue to get in but I hope somehow I will contrive another report tomorrow evening. With grateful thanks to those who donated or subscribed to make this reporting possible. This article is entirely free to reproduce and publish, including in translation, and I very much hope people will do so actively. Truth shall set us free. Your Man in the Public Gallery, Assange Hearing Day 2, 26th of February 2020. This afternoon, Julian's Spanish lawyer, Baltasar Garthon, left court to return to Madrid. On the way out, he naturally stopped to shake hands with his client, proffering his fingers through the narrow slit in the bulletproof glass cage. Assange half stood to take his lawyer's hand. The two security guards in the cage with Assange immediately sprang up, putting hands on Julian and forcing him to sit down preventing the handshake. That was not by any means the worst thing today. 
But it is a striking image of the senseless brute force continually used against a man accused of publishing documents. That a man cannot even shake his lawyer's hand goodbye is against the entire spirit in which the members of the legal system like to pretend the law is practised. I offer that startling moment as encapsulating yesterday's events in court. Day two proceedings had started with a statement from Edward Fitzgerald, Assange's QC, that shook us rudely into life. He stated that yesterday, on the first day of trial, Julian had twice been stripped naked and searched, eleven times been handcuffed, and five times been locked up in different holding cells. On top of this, all of his court documents had been taken from him by the prison authorities, including privileged communications between his lawyers and himself, and he had been left with no ability to participate in today's proceedings. Magistrate Barretzer looked at Fitzgerald and stated, in a voice laced with disdain, that he had raised such matters before, and she had always replied that she had no jurisdiction over the prison estate. He should take it up with the prison authorities. Fitzgerald remained on his feet, which drew a very definite scowl from Barretzer, and replied that of course they would do that again, but this repeated behaviour by the prison authorities threatened the ability of the defence to prepare. He added that regardless of jurisdiction, in his experience it was common practice for magistrates and judges to pass on comments and requests to the prison service where the conduct of the trial was affected, and that jails normally listened to magistrates sympathetically. Barretzer flat-out denied any knowledge of such a practice, and stated that Fitzgerald should present her with written arguments setting out the case law on jurisdiction over prison conditions. This was too much even for prosecution counsel James Lewis, who stood up to say the prosecution would also want Assange to have a fair hearing, and that he could confirm that what the defence was suggesting was normal practice. Even then, Barretts are still refused to intervene with the prison. She stated that if the prison conditions were so bad as to reach the very high bar of making a fair hearing impossible, the defence should bring a motion to dismiss the charges on those grounds. Otherwise, they should drop it. Both prosecution and defence seemed surprised by Barretts' claim that she had not heard of what they both referred to as common practice. Lewis may have been genuinely concerned at the shocking description of Assange's prison treatment yesterday, or he may have just had warning klaxons going off in his head, screaming, mistrial. But the net result is Barretzer will attempt to do nothing to prevent Julian's physical and mental abuse in jail, nor to try to give him the ability to participate in his defence. The only realistic explanation that occurs to me is that Barretzer has been warned off because this continual mistreatment and confiscation of documents is on senior government authority. A last small incident for me to recount... Having queued again from the early hours, I was at the final queue before the entrance to the public gallery when the name was called out of Kristen Hernefson, editor of WikiLeaks, with whom I was talking at the time. Kristen identified himself and was told by the court official he was barred from the public gallery. Now, I was with Kristen throughout the entire proceedings the previous day, and he had done absolutely nothing amiss. He is rather a quiet gentleman. When he was called for, it was by name and by job description. They were specifically banning the editor of WikiLeaks from the trial. Kristen asked why, and was told it was a decision of the court. At this stage, John Shipton, Julian's father, announced that in this case the family members would all leave too, and they did so, walking out of the building. They and others then started tweeting the news of the family walkout. This appeared to cause some consternation among court officials, and 15 minutes later, Kristen was readmitted. We still have no idea what lay behind this. 
Later in the day, journalists were being briefed by officials it was simply over queue jumping, but that seems improbable as he was removed by staff who were calling him by name and title rather than had spotted him as a queue jumper. None of the above goes to the official matter of the case. All of the above tells you more about the draconian nature of the political show trial which is taking place than does the charade being enacted in the body of the court. There were moments today when I got drawn into the court process and achieved the suspension of disbelief you might do in theatre, and began thinking, wow, this case is going well for Assange. Then an event such as those recounted above kicks in, a coldness grips your heart, and you recall there is no jury here to be convinced. I simply do not believe that anything said or proved in the courtroom can have an impact on the final verdict of this court. So to the actual proceedings in the case. For the defence, Mark Summers QC stated that the USA charges were entirely dependent on three factual accusations of Assange behaviour. 1. Assange helped Manning to decode a hash key to access classified material. Summers stated this was a provably false allegation from the evidence of the Manning court-martial. 2. Assange solicited the material from Manning. Summers stated this was provably wrong from information available to the public. 3. Assange knowingly put lives at risk. Summers stated this was provably wrong, both from publicly available information and from specific involvement of the US government. In summary, Summers stated the US government knew that the allegations being made were false as to fact, and they were demonstrably made in bad faith. This was therefore an abusive process which should lead to dismissal of the extradition request. He described the above three counts as rubbish, rubbish, and rubbish. Summers then walked through the facts of the case. He said the charges from the USA divide the materials leaked by Manning to WikiLeaks into three categories. A. Diplomatic cables. B. Guantanamo detainee assessment briefs. C. Iraq war rules of engagement. D. Afghan and Iraqi war logs. Summers then methodically went through A, B, C and D, relating each in turn to alleged behaviours 1, 2 and 3, making 12 counts of explanation and exposition in all. This comprehensive account took some four hours, and I shall not attempt to capture it here. I will rather give highlights, but will relate occasionally to the alleged behaviour number and or the alleged materials letter. I hope you follow. It took me some time to do so. On 1... Summers at great length demonstrated conclusively that Manning had access to each material ABCD provided to WikiLeaks without needing any code from Assange, and had that access before ever contacting Assange. Nor had Manning needed a code to conceal her identity as the prosecution alleged. The database for intelligence analysts Manning could access, as could thousands of others, did not require a username or password to access it from a, a work military computer. Summers quoted testimony of several officers from Manning's court-martial to confirm this. Nor would breaking the system's admin code on the system give Manning access to any additional classified databases. Summers quoted evidence from the Manning court-martial where this had been accepted, that the reason Manning wanted to get into systems admin was to allow soldiers to put their video games and movies on their government laptops, which in fact happened frequently. 
Magistrate Barretzer twice made major interruptions. She observed that if Chelsea Manning did not know she could not be traced as the user who downloaded the databases, she might have sought Assange's assistance to crack a code to conceal her identity from ignorance she did not need to do that, and to assist would still be an offence by Assange. Summers pointed out that Manning knew that she did not need a username and password because she actually accessed all the materials without one. Barretzer replied that this did not constitute proof she knew she could not be traced. Summers said in logic it made no sense to argue that she was seeking a code to conceal her user ID and password where there was no user ID and password. Barretzer replied, again, he could not prove that. At this point, Summers became somewhat testy and short with Barretzer and took her through the court-martial evidence again, of which more. Barretzer also made the point that even if Assange were helping Manning to crack an admin code, even if it did not enable Manning to access any more databases, that still was unauthorised use and would constitute the crime of aiding and abetting computer misuse, even if for an innocent purpose. After a brief break, Barretzer came back with a real zinger. She told Summers that he had presented the findings of the US court-martial of Chelsea Manning as fact, but... She did not agree that her court had to treat evidence at a US court-martial, even if agreed or uncontested evidence or prosecution evidence, as fact. Summers replied that agreed evidence or prosecution evidence at the US court-martial clearly was agreed by the US government as fact, and what was at issue at the moment was whether the US government was charging contrary to the facts it knew. Barretzer said she would return to her point once witnesses were heard. Barretzer was now making no attempt to conceal a hostility to the defence argument and seemed irritated they had the temerity to make it. This burst out when discussing C, the Iraq war rules of engagement. Summers argued that these had not been solicited from Manning, but had rather been provided by Manning in an accompanying file along with a collateral murder video that showed the murder of Reuters journalists and children. Manning's purpose, as she stated at her court-martial, was to show that the collateral murder actions breached the rules of engagement, even though the Department of Defence claimed otherwise. Summer stated that by not including this context, the US extradition request was deliberately misleading, as it did not even mention the collateral murder video at all. At this point, Barretzer could not conceal her contempt. Try to imagine Lady Bracknell saying, A handbag? Or the Brighton line? Or if your education didn't run that way, try to imagine Pretty Patel spotting a disabled immigrant. This is a literal quote. Are you suggesting, Mr. Summers, that the authorities, the government, should have to provide context for its charges? An unfazed Summers replied in the affirmative, and then went on to show where the Supreme Court had said so in other extradition cases. Barretzer was showing utter confusion that anybody could claim a significant distinction between the government and God. The bulk of Summer's argument went to refuting behaviour 3, putting lives at risk. This was only claimed in relation to materials A and D. Summers described at great length the effort of WikiLeaks, with media partners over more than a year, to set up a massive redaction campaign on the cables. He explained that the unredacted cables only became available after Luke Harding and David Lee of The Guardian published the password to the cache as the heading to Chapter 11 of their book WikiLeaks, published in February 2011. Nobody had put two and two together on this password until the German publication Der Freitag had done so and announced it had the unredacted cables in August 2011. Summers then gave the most powerful arguments of the day. 
the US government had been actively participating in the redaction exercise on the cables. They therefore knew the allegations of reckless publication to be untrue. Once Der Freitag announced they had the unredacted materials, Julian Assange and Sarah Harrison instantly telephoned the White House, State Department, or US Embassy to warn them named sources may be put at risk. Summers read from the transcripts of telephone conversations as Assange and Harrison attempted to convince US officials of the urgency of enabling source protection procedures and expressed their bafflement as officials stonewalled them. This evidence utterly undermined the US government's case and proved bad faith in omitting extremely relevant fact. It was a very striking moment. With relation to the same behaviour 3 on Materials D, Summers showed that the Manning Court Martial had accepted these materials contained no endangered source names, but showed that WikiLeaks had activated a redaction exercise anyway as a belt and braces approach. There was much more from the defence. For the prosecution, James Lewis indicated he would reply in depth later in the proceedings, but wished to state that the prosecution does not accept the court-martial evidence as fact, and particularly does not accept any of the self-serving testimony of Chelsea Manning, whom he portrayed as a convicted criminal falsely claiming noble motives. The prosecution generally rejected any notion that this court should consider the truth or otherwise of any of the facts. Those could only be decided at trial in the USA. Then, to wrap up proceedings, Barrett's had dropped a massive bombshell. She stated that although Article 4.1 of the US-UK extradition treaty forbade political extraditions, this was only in the treaty. That exemption does not appear in the UK Extradition Act. On the face of it, therefore, political extradition is not illegal in the UK, as the treaty has no legal force on the court. She invited the defence to address this argument in the morning. It is now 6.35am, and I am late to start queuing. With grateful thanks to those who donated or subscribed to make this reporting possible. This article is entirely free to reproduce and publish, including in translation, and I very much hope people will do so actively. Truth shall set us free. Your Man in the Public Gallery, The Assange Hearing, Day 3, 27th February 2020. In yesterday's proceedings in court, the prosecution adopted arguments so stark and apparently unreasonable, I have been fretting on how to write them up in a way that does not seem like caricature or unfair exaggeration on my part. What has been happening in this court has long moved beyond caricature. All I can do is give you my personal assurance that what I recount actually is what happened. As usual, I shall deal with procedural matters and Julian's treatment first before getting into a clear account of the legal arguments made. Vanessa Barrantzer is under a clear instruction to mimic concern by asking near the end of every session, just before we break anyway, if Julian is feeling well and whether he would like a break. She then routinely ignores his response. Yesterday, he replied at some length he could not hear properly in his glass box and could not communicate with his lawyers. At some point yesterday, they had started preventing him passing notes to his counsel, which I learned was the background to the aggressive prevention of his shaking Garthon's hand goodbye. Baratza insisted he might only be heard through his counsel, which, given he was prevented from instructing them, was a bit rich. This being pointed out, 
we had a 10-minute adjournment while Julian and his council were allowed to talk down in the cells, presumably where they could be more conveniently bugged yet again. On return, Edward Fitzgerald made a formal application for Julian to be allowed to sit beside his lawyers in the court. Julian was a gentle intellectual man, and not a terrorist. Baratza replied that releasing Assange from the dock into the body of the court would mean he was released from custody. To achieve that would require an application for bail. Again, the prosecution counsel James Lewis intervened on the side of the defence to try to make Julian's treatment less extreme. He was not, he suggested diffidently, quite sure that it was correct that it required bail for Julian to be in the body of the court, or that being in the body of the court accompanied by security officers meant that a prisoner was no longer in custody. Prisoners, even the most dangerous of terrorists, gave evidence from the witness box in the body of the court next to the lawyers and magistrate. In the High Court, prisoners frequently sat with their lawyers in extradition hearings, in extreme cases of violent criminals handcuffed to a security officer. Baratza replied that Assange might pose a danger to the public. It was a question of health and safety. How did Fitzgerald and Lewis think that she had the ability to carry out the necessary risk assessment? It would have to be up to Group 4 to decide if that was possible. Yes, she really did say that. Group 4 would have to decide. Baratza started to throw out jargon like a Dalek when it spins out of control. Risk assessment and health and safety featured a lot. She started to resemble something worse than a Dalek, a particularly stupid local government officer of a very low grade. No jurisdiction. Up to Group 4. Recovering slightly, she stated firmly that delivery to custody can only mean delivery to the dock of the court, nowhere else in the room. If the defence wanted him in the courtroom where he could hear proceedings better, they could only apply for bail and his release from custody in general. She then peered at both barristers in the hope this would have set them down but both were still on their feet. In his diffident manner, which I confess is growing on me, Lewis said, The prosecution is neutral on this request, of course, but uh, I really don't think that's right. He looked at her like a kindly uncle whose favourite niece has just started drinking tequila from the bottle at a family party. Baritzer concluded the matter by stating that the defence should submit written arguments by 10am tomorrow on this point, and she would then hold a separate hearing into the question of Julian's position in the court. The day had begun with a very angry magistrate Baritzer addressing the public gallery. Yesterday, she said, a photo had been taken inside the courtroom. It was a criminal offence to take or attempt to take photographs inside the courtroom. Vanessa Baritzer looked at this point very keen to lock someone up. She also seemed, in her anger, to be making the unfounded assumption that whoever took the photo from the public gallery on Tuesday was still there on Wednesday. I suspect not. Being angry at the public at random must be very stressful for her. I suspect she shouts a lot on trains. Miss Barrister is not fond of photography. She appears to be the only public figure in Western Europe with no photo on the internet. Indeed, the average proprietor of a rural car wash has left more evidence of their existence and life history on the internet than Vanessa Barretzer, which is no crime on her part, but I suspect the expunging is not achieved without considerable effort. Somebody suggested to me she might be a hologram, but I think not. Holograms have more empathy. I was amused by the criminal offence of attempting to take photographs in the courtroom, How incompetent would you need to be to attempt to take a photo and fail to do so? And if no photo was taken, 
how do they prove you were attempting to take one as opposed to texting your mum? I suppose attempting to take a photo is a crime that could catch somebody arriving with a large SLR, tripod and several mounted lighting boxes, but none of those appear to have made it into the public gallery. Barrister did not state whether it was a criminal offence to publish a photograph taken in a courtroom, or indeed to attempt to publish a photograph taken in a courtroom. I suspect it is. Anyway, Le Grand Soir has published a translation of my report yesterday, and there you can see a photo of Julian in his bulletproof glass anti-terrorist cage. Not, I hasten to add, taken by me. We now come to the consideration of yesterday's legal arguments on the extradition request itself. Fortunately, these are basically fairly simple to summarise, because although we had five hours of legal disquisition, it largely consisted of both sides competing in citing scores of authorities, e.g. dead judges, to endorse their point of view, and thus repeating the same points continually with little value from exegesis of the innumerable quotes. As prefigured yesterday by Magistrate Barretzer, the prosecution is arguing that Article 4.1 of the UK-US Extradition Treaty has no force in law. The UK and US governments say that the court enforces domestic law, not international law, and therefore the treaty has no standing. This argument has been made to the court in written form, to which I do not have access, but from discussion in court, it was plain that the prosecution argue that the Extradition Act of 2003, under which the court is operating, makes no exception for political offences. All previous extradition acts had excluded extradition of political offences, so it must be the intention of the Sovereign Parliament that political offenders can now be extradited. Opening his argument, Edward Fitzgerald QC argued that the Extradition Act of 2003 alone is not enough to make an actual extradition. The extradition requires two things in place, the General Extradition Act and the extradition treaty with the country or countries concerned. No treaty, no extradition was an unbreakable rule. The treaty was the very basis of the request. So to say that the extradition was not governed by the terms of the very treaty under which it was made was to create a legal absurdity and thus an abusive process. He cited examples of judgments made by the House of Lords and Privy Council where treaty rights were deemed enforceable despite the lack of incorporation into domestic legislation, particularly in order to stop people being extradited to potential execution from British colonies. Fitzgerald pointed out that while the Extradition Act of 2003 did not contain a bar on extraditions for political offences, it did not state there could not be such a bar in extradition treaties. And the Extradition Treaty of 2007 was ratified after the 2003 Extradition Act. At this stage, Barretzer interrupted that it was plain the intention of Parliament was that there could be extradition for political offences. Otherwise, they would not have removed the bar in previous legislation. Fitzgerald declined to agree, saying the Act did not say extradition for political offences could not be banned by the treaty enabling the extradition. Fitzgerald then continued to say that international jurisprudence had accepted for a century or more that you did not extradite political offenders. No political extradition was in the European Convention on Extradition, the Model United Nations Extradition Treaty, and the Interpol Convention on Extradition. It was in every single one of the United States extradition treaties with other countries and had been for over a century at the insistence of the United States. For both the UK and US governments to say it did not apply was astonishing and would 
set a terrible precedent that would endanger dissidents and potential political prisoners from China, Russia and regimes all over the world who had escaped to third countries. Fitzgerald stated that all major authorities agreed there were two types of political offence, the pure political offence and the relative political offence. A pure political offence was defined as treason, espionage and sedition, or sedition. A relative political offence was an act which was normally criminal, like assault or vandalism conducted with a political motive. Every one of the charges against Assange was a pure political offence. All but one were espionage charges, and the computer misuse charge had been compared by the prosecution to breach of the Official Secrets Act to meet the dual criminality test. The overriding accusation that Assange was seeking to harm the political and military interests of the United States was in the very definition of a political offence in all the authorities. In reply, Lewis stated that a treaty could not be binding in English law unless specifically incorporated in English law by Parliament. This was a necessary democratic defence. Treaties were made by the executive, which could not make law. This went to the sovereignty of Parliament. Lewis quoted many judgments stating that international treaties signed and ratified by the UK could not be enforced in British courts. It may come as a surprise to other countries that their treaties with the British government can have no legal force he joked. Lewis said there was no abuse of process here, and thus no rights were invoked under the European Convention. It was just the normal operation of the law that the treaty provision on no extradition for political offences had no legal standing. Lewis said that the US government disputes that Assange's offences are political. In the UK, Australia, US, there was a different definition of political offence to the rest of the world. We viewed the pure political offences of treason, espionage and sedition as not political offences. Only relative political offences, ordinary crimes committed with a political motive, were viewed as political offences in our tradition. In this tradition, the definition of political was also limited to supporting a contending political party in a state. Lewis will continue with this argument tomorrow. That concludes my account of proceedings. I have some important commentary to make on this and will try to do another posting later today. Now rushing to court. With grateful thanks to those who donated or subscribed to make this reporting possible. This article is entirely free to reproduce and publish, including in translation, and I very much hope people will do so actively. Truth shall set us free. Your Man in the Public Gallery, Assange Hearing Day 4, published 28th of February 2020. Please try this experiment for me. Try asking this question out loud in a tone of intellectual interest and engagement. Are you suggesting that the two have the same effect? Now try asking this question out loud in a tone of hostility and incredulity bordering on sarcasm. Are you suggesting that the two have the same effect? Firstly, congratulations on your acting skills. You take direction very well. Secondly, is it not fascinating how precisely the same words can convey the opposite meaning dependent on modulation of stress, pitch and volume? Yesterday, the prosecution continued its argument that the provision in the 2007 UK-US extradition treaty that bars extradition for political offences is a dead letter, and that Julian Assange's objectives are not political in any event. James Lewis QC for the prosecution spoke for about an hour, and Edward Fitzgerald QC replied for the defence for about the same time. 
During Lewis's presentation, he was interrupted by Judge Baratzer precisely once. During Fitzgerald's reply, Baratzer interjected 17 times. In the transcript, those interruptions will not look unreasonable. Could you clarify that for me, Mr. Fitzgerald? So how do you cope with Mr. Lewis's point that... But surely that's a circular argument. But it's not incorporated, is it? All these and the other dozen interruptions were designed to appear to show the judge attempting to clarify the defence's argument in a spirit of intellectual testing. But if you heard the tone of Barrett's voice, saw her body language and facial expressions, it was anything but. The false picture a transcript might give is exacerbated by the courtly Fitzgeralds continually replying to each obvious harassment with, Thank you, madam, that is very helpful, which again, if you were there plainly meant the opposite, but what a transcript will helpfully nevertheless show was the bully pulpit of Barrett's tactic in interrupting Fitzgerald again and again and again, belittling his points and very deliberately indeed preventing him from getting into the flow of his argument. The contrast in every way with her treatment of Lewis could not be more pronounced. So now to report the legal arguments themselves. James Lewis for the prosecution, continuing his arguments from the day before, said that Parliament had not included a bar on extradition for political offences in the 2003 Act. It could therefore not be reintroduced into law by a treaty. To introduce a political offences bar by the back door would be to subvert the intention of Parliament. Lewis also argued that these were not political offences. The definition of a political offence was in the UK limited to behaviour intended to overturn or change a government or induce it to change its policy. Furthermore, the aim must be to change government or policy in the short term, not the indeterminate future. Lewis stated that further, the term political offence could only be applied to offences committed within the territory where it was attempted to make the change. So, to be classified as political offences, Assange would have had to commit them within the territory of the USA, but he did not. If Barretzer did decide the bar on political offences applied, the court would have to determine the meaning of political offence in the UK-US extradition treaty and construe the meaning of paragraphs 4.1 and 4.2 of the treaty. To construe the terms of an international treaty was beyond the powers of the court. Lewis perorated that the conduct of Julian Assange cannot possibly be classified as a political offence. It is impossible to place Julian Assange in the position of a political refugee. The activity in which WikiLeaks was engaged was not, in its proper meaning, political opposition to the US administration or an attempt to overthrow that administration, therefore the offence was not political. For the defence, Edward Fitzgerald replied that the 2003 Extradition Act was an enabling act under which treaties could operate. Parliament had been concerned to remove any threat of abuse of the political offence bar to cover terrorist acts of violence against innocent civilians – but there remained a clear protection accepted worldwide for peaceful political dissent. This was reflected in the extradition treaty on the basis of which the court was acting. Barretzer interrupted that the UK-US extradition treaty was not incorporated into English law. Fitzgerald replied that the entire extradition request is on the basis of the treaty. It is an abusive process for the authorities to rely on the treaty for the application, but then to claim that its provisions do not apply. Quote, on the face of it, it is a very bizarre argument that a treaty which gives rise to the extradition, 
on which the extradition is founded can be disregarded in its provisions. It is on the face of it absurd. Unquote. Edward Fitzgerald, QC for the defence. Fitzgerald added that English courts construe treaties all the time. He gave examples. Fitzgerald went on that the defence did not accept that treason, espionage and sedition were not regarded as political offences in England, but even if one did accept Lewis's too narrow definition of political offence, Assange's behaviour still met the test. What on earth could be the motive of publishing evidence of government war crimes and corruption other than to change the policy of the government? Indeed, the evidence would prove that WikiLeaks had effectively changed the policy of the US government, particularly on Iraq. Barratzer interjected that to expose government wrongdoing was not the same thing as to try to change government policy. Fitzgerald asked her, finally in some exasperation after umpteen interruptions, what other point could there be in exposing government wrongdoing other than to induce a change of government policy? That concluded opening arguments for the prosecution and defence. My personal commentary. Let me put this as neutrally as possible. If you could fairly state that Lewis's argument was much more logical, rational and intuitive than Fitzgerald, you could understand why Lewis did not need an interruption while Fitzgerald had to be continually interrupted for clarification. But in fact, it was Lewis who was making out the case that the provisions of the very treaty under which the extradition is being made do not in fact apply – a logical step which I suggest the man on the Clapham omnibus might reason to need rather more testing than Fitzgerald's assertion to the contrary. Barrett's comparative harassment of Fitzgerald when he had the prosecution on the ropes was straight out of the Stalin show trial playbook. The defence did not mention it, and I do not know if it features in their written arguments, but I thought Lewis's point that these could not be political offences, because Julian Assange was not in the USA when he committed them, was breathtakingly dishonest. The USA claims universal jurisdiction. Assange is being charged with crimes of publishing committed while he was outside the USA. The USA claims the right to charge anyone of any nationality anywhere in the world who harms US interests. They also, in addition here, claim that as the materials could be seen on the internet in the USA, there was an offence in the USA. At the same time, to claim this could not be a political offence as the crime was committed outside the USA is, as Edward Fitzgerald might say, on the face of it absurd, which, curiously, Baratza did not pick up on. Lewis's argument that the treaty does not have any standing in English law is not something he just made up. Nigel Farage did not materialise from nowhere. There is, in truth, a long tradition in English law that even a treaty signed and ratified with some... Johnny Foreigner Country can in no way bind an English court. Lewis could and did spout reams and reams of judgments from old beetroot-faced judges holding forth to say exactly that in the House of Lords before going off to shoot grouse and spank the footman's son. Lewis was especially fond of the Tin Council case. There is, of course, a contrary and more enlightened tradition and a number of judgments that say the exact opposite, mostly more recent. This is why there was so much repetitive argument as each side piled up more and more volumes of authorities on their side of the case. The difficulty for Lewis, and for Baratza, is that this case is not analogous to me buying a Mars bar and then going to court because an international treaty on Mars bars says mine is too small. Rather, the 2003 Extradition Act is an enabling act 
on which extradition treaties then depend. You can't thus extradite under the 2003 Act without the treaty. So the extradition treaty of 2007, in a very real sense, becomes an executive instrument legally required to authorise the extradition. For the executing authorities to breach the terms of the necessary executive instrument under which they are acting simply has to be an abusive process. So the extradition treaty, owing to its type and its necessity for legal action, is in fact incorporated in English law by the Extradition Act of 2003, on which it depends. The extradition treaty is a necessary precondition of the extradition, whereas a Mars bar treaty is not a necessary precondition to buying the Mars bar. That is as plain as I can put it. I do hope that is comprehensible. It is, of course, difficult for Lewis that on the same day the Court of Appeal was ruling against the construction of the Heathrow Third Runway, partly because of its incompatibility with the Paris Agreement of 2016, despite the latter not being fully incorporated into English law by the Climate Change Act of 2008. Vital Personal Experience It is intensely embarrassing for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, FCO, when an English court repudiates the application of a treaty the UK has ratified with one or more foreign states. For that reason, in the modern world, very serious procedures and precautions have been put into place to make certain that this cannot happen. Therefore, the prosecution's argument that all the provisions of the UK-US Extradition Treaty of 2007 are not able to be implemented under the Extradition Act of 2003 ought to be impossible. I need to explain, I have myself negotiated and overseen the entry into force of treaties with the FCO. The last one in which I personally tied the ribbon and applied the sealing wax, literally, was the Anglo-Belgian Continental Shelf Treaty of 1991. But I was involved in negotiating others, and the system I am going to describe was still in place when I left the FCO as an ambassador in 2005, and I believe is unchanged today. And remember... The Extradition Act was 2003, and the US-UK Extradition Treaty ratified 2007, so my knowledge is not outdated. Departmental nomenclatures change from time to time, and so does structural organisation, but the offices and functions I will describe remain, even if names may be different. All international treaties have a two-stage process. First, they are signed to show the government agrees to the treaty, Then, after a delay, they are ratified. This second stage takes place when the government has enabled the legislation and other required agency to implement the treaty. This is the answer to Lewis's observation about the roles of the executive and legislature. The ratification stage only takes place after any required legislative action. That is the whole point. This is how it happens in the FCO. Officials negotiate the extradition treaty. It is signed for the UK. The signed treaty then gets returned to FCO legal advisers, nationality and treaty department, consular department, North American department and others, and is sent on to Treasury stroke cabinet office solicitors and to Home Office, Parliament and to any other government department whose area is impacted by the individual treaty. The treaty is extensively vetted to check that it can be fully implemented in all the jurisdictions of the UK. If it cannot, then amendments to the law have to be made so that it can. These amendments can be made by Act of Parliament, or more generally by secondary legislation, using powers conferred on the Secretary of State by an Act. If there is already an Act of Parliament under which the treaty can be implemented, 
then no enabling legislation needs to be passed. International agreements are not all individually incorporated into English or Scottish laws by specific new legislation. This is a very careful step-by-step process carried out by lawyers and officials in the FCO, Treasury, Cabinet Office, Home Office, Parliament and elsewhere. Each will, in parallel, look at every clause of the treaty and check that it can be applied. All changes needed to give effect to the treaty then have to be made, amending legislation and necessary administrative steps. Only when all hurdles have been cleared, including legislation and parliamentary officials, Treasury, Cabinet Office, Home Office and FCO all certify that the treaty is capable of having effect in the UK, will the FCO legal advisers give the go-ahead for the treaty to be ratified. You absolutely cannot ratify the treaty before FCO legal advisers have given this clearance. This is a serious process. That is why the US-UK extradition treaty was signed in 2003 and ratified in 2007. That is not an abnormal delay. So, I know for certain that all the relevant British government legal departments must have agreed that Article 4.1 of the UK-US extradition treaty was capable of being given effect under the 2003 Extradition Act. That certification has to have happened or the treaty could never have been ratified. It follows of necessity that the UK government, in seeking to argue now that Article 4.1 is incompatible with the 2003 Act, is knowingly lying. There could not be a more gross abuse of process. I have been keen for the hearing on this particular point to conclude so that I could give you the benefit of my experience. I shall rest there for now, but later today hope to post further on yesterday's row in court over releasing Julian from the anti-terrorist armoured dock. With grateful thanks to those who donated or subscribed to make this reporting possible, I wish to stress again that I absolutely do not want anybody to give anything if it causes them the slightest possibility of financial strain. This article is entirely free to reproduce and publish, including in translation, and I very much hope people will do so actively. Truth shall set us free. Okay, well, that's it for now. As of the time of recording, that's as far as Craig Murray's report goes at the moment. But please do check out his website for anything that he may add to that in the coming days, which you will find over at craigmurray.org.uk. As I say, I hope to speak to you again very soon, maybe even as early as next week. But for now, I shall just say this has been The Mind Renewed with podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakoff, attribution non-commercial share alike for International. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future.